Well, welcome to the Miami Church Podcast. My name is Greg, and I am so glad that you are listening right now. Listen, man, life is hard, but we are here to help you. And so I hope you enjoyed today's message. And man, our, our, our real prayer and our real hope is that, that the message today will help you take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. A couple years ago, I was invited to lunch with a guy who was attending our church at the time. And we sat down at the table across from each other and made small talk for a few minutes. The waiter took our lunch order. And then this guy, he looked across the table at me with a very serious look on his face. And, and, and he said, your sermons aren't doing anything for me. At which point I obviously thought, well, you're definitely paying for lunch today, <laughs> right? But your sermons aren't doing anything for me. Okay, well, well, let's unpack that. Like, what does that mean? What do you mean not doing anything for you? And then he said something that I'll never forget, and that honestly, as I reflect on all these years later, it still makes me sad. He said, Greg... <clears throat> Your sermons, they, they don't make me feel bad. He said, I, I want to feel bad about myself. So, all right, just to be clear, bad. So, like, you want to feel bad. Like, you want to feel guilt and shame and regret and condemnation on Sundays at church. You want me to preach sermons on Sunday that make you feel bad about yourself. Is that what you're saying? See, the truth is, for many of us, I mean, maybe even you, when you think about God, when you think about Jesus and church and Christianity, you, the place you start, the starting point, the starting point for, for your idea of the Christian faith, your starting point for the idea of following Jesus, it's actually an accusation. You are a sinner, right? You are a sinner, and you are going to burn in hell. You are a Sinner, it's an accusation. <laughs> Aren't you glad you're listening right now? This is going to be fun. See, we're in week two of a conversation around the whole idea of faith. And this is really a conversation about the idea of confidence. Your confidence in God. Now, we're calling this conversation, this message series, Starting Point, because everything has a starting point, including your faith. Now, last week in part one, and if you missed it, go, go check it out, we said that we believe, and I believe, the true starting point, the real starting point of the Christian faith, the, the true starting point in following Jesus is a question, who is Jesus? I mean, what do I think about Jesus? I mean, this is the thing, this is the question that you've got to wrestle to the ground, and I believe everyone, maybe even people that don't want to mess with it, at some point they've got to address and answer this question, who is Jesus? But culturally, traditionally, I mean, if you have any background at all in church, my experience tells me, and I know many of your experiences tell you, that the starting point of the Christian faith, the, the starting point to following Jesus, it's not a question, it's rather an accusation. You are a sinner. Now, friends, there's a big difference between the starting point being a question and it being an accusation. I mean, let's, 
unpack this for a minute. I mean, sin. I mean, what, what a really interesting word. I mean, this word sin, it really only surfaces when you're having a religious conversation. I mean, if you have any kind of background in church, this is a familiar word. You kind of get it. Yeah, I mean, it can be a very uncomfortable word, and I think for some of us it can seem somewhat antiquated and old. And it's really only a word that we use in the theological sense, the idea of God. I mean, if you're a parent, you don't, you don't look at your kids and say, you have sinned against me and your mother. I mean, if you own a small business and you've got employees, you don't, you don't say, hey, hey, please come to my office. We need to talk about some of your sins. I mean, when you get pulled over for speeding on US-1, you don't get a sin citation. I mean, the only time we use this word sin is in relation to God. Here's, here's another thing about the word sin. You know this, sin. I mean, it's like a heavy word. It's a weighted word. It, 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 it's, it's just like a big, heavy kind of sin. It's why even talking about this right now is so uncomfortable. In fact, the heaviness of it, I think, is part of the reason many of us resist the word anyway. I mean, if you say, hey, I have sinned, it's like, whoa, man, that's heavy. There's no, like, out. There's no wiggle room. It's like, I have sinned. You can't blame, well, my parents, you know, they didn't, they didn't teach me this, or my boss did this, or my friends, or they made me do it. Like, like when you say the word sin, there's just no wiggle room. There's no blame, like, sin. I mean, it's like you're, you look in the mirror, right? And you see your reflection is like, there's the problem. It's me. I'm looking at it. I have sinned. I am a sinner. It's like, yikes. I mean, that, that's not cool. That, that's not fun at all. But, but we know we aren't perfect. I mean, come on. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. I mean, you don't have to follow me around for 10 minutes to know that I'm not perfect. So in our effort to address this tension between our inability to get it right every time and our disdain for being categorized as never getting it right, we've got to adopt a new word, right? We need, we need a substitute word, one that leaves us a little more wiggle room, one that is, uh, gives us an out or sounds a little more hopeful. So I think what we've done culturally is we've replaced the word sin with this word, mistake, mistake. It's kind of like middle ground. Like, hey, listen, I know I'm not perfect, but sinner? I mean, whoa, calm down. That's too strong. That's too much. That's too far. Mistake. Yeah, mistake. I mean, I mean, how many times have you seen a politician, right? There, or some public official, they're on TV, and there's like a podium, and there's like eight microphones, and, and they say something like this. Listen, I've just made a, a terrible mistake. I've hurt my family. I've destroyed my reputation. I've hurt the city, hurt the community. Right? And you're watching and you think, mistake? That, that, that's not a mistake. I mean, a mistake is something that an eighth grader does on a math test. I mean, what you're talking about is bigger than a mistake. I mean, a mistake is like when you're driving and Google says turn left and you turn right. I mean, that's a mistake. Not what you're talking about. That's not a mistake. I mean, think about it this way. If, if I were uh, here, so let's just say you were in this room, and there are hundreds of you in the room, right? And I were to say, okay, uh, raise your hand if you've made a mistake. Okay, just hundreds of you in the room, raise your hand. Like, every hand in the room would go up. I mean, you would be embarrassed not to raise your hand because everyone's made a mistake. No one's perfect, I mean, if you didn't raise your hand, it'd be like, what's wrong with you, man? Are you in denial? Are you lying? Of course you raise your hand. Okay, but same scenario. What if room's packed, 
hundreds of people, you're in here. What if I said, raise your hand if you have sinned? Okay, now, me, you, we're going to be a lot more hesitant. I mean, people sitting in the front are going to kind of try to look over their shoulder and to see what people in the back are doing. I mean, mistake? Yes. I made, I've made mistakes. I make mistakes. Sin? Whoa, that's heavy. So here's my point. Here, here one. I, I don't think the word mistake is the right word. Uh, because a, a mistake involves insufficient knowledge. Just the implication, hey, hey, we didn't know any better. I mean, it was, a mistake is something that we learn from, right? And we, we don't do it again. But here's what I know about you. And here's what I know about me. Is that sometimes we make mistakes on purpose. I mean, you, you ever made a mistake on purpose? Don't we? Don't you? I mean, when someone goes on TV and admits to a four-year-long mistake, I mean, can you make the same mistake for four years and then when you get caught, go, well, I just made a mistake? Is that even possible? Here's what else I know about you and me, is sometimes we plan our mistakes. I mean, what do you call a mistake that you planned? (laughs) I mean, I have a stash of mistakes hidden in in your house, or or you've already planned your next mistakes. I mean, what do you call it, a premeditated mistake? I mean, is, is there such a thing? Here's what else I know about you and me is that some, sometimes we make the same mistakes over and over, over and over and over again, like repeated mistakes. I mean, what do you call a mistake that you make over and over again? Or, or worse, what do you call a person who makes the same mistake over and over again? A, a mistaker? <laughs> Made that word up. A repeat mistaker? A repeat mistake? I don't even know. See, see mistake, the word mistake, it... it It just doesn't cut it. There's something else going on. And you know why? What do you do with a mistake? If I make a mistake, I correct it, right? You correct a mistake. If it's in math, you erase it and put the right answer. If you're driving and you made a left turn instead of a right turn, you turn around and correct it. But here's the problem. I can't correct me. You, you can't correct you. I can't correct me. I'm the problem. I mean, why am I not able to do what I know I should do? Or why am I unwilling? I mean, why do I resist the idea of embracing the fact that it might be something deeper? Maybe it's a sin problem. I mean, let's just try to keep it real. I, I can't correct me. I know. You know how I know? I've tried for years. You've tried for years. Your spouse has tried to correct you. You've paid people to help correct you. I mean, come on, I'm going to be honest. I've paid people $125 an hour to try to correct me. And some of you have lost friends, you've lost spouses, maybe even jobs, because of your propensity to make mistakes. I mean, why can't you just quit? I mean, why can't I just quit? Why can't I just stop making mistakes? Why can't I just quit losing your temper or quit eating so much or quit drinking so much or quit looking at that stuff or quit spending so much money? Why, why can't you just correct yourself? Why can't you just stop? Now, Jesus enters into this conversation. And Jesus talked about this. And Jesus actually used this word sin. Jesus actually talked about sin. But here's important. Listen, when Jesus talked about sin, he always did it in the, in the connection with relationship. And Jesus said that sin breaks, it destroys, it fractures relationships. 
And you know this. I mean, you've experienced this. When, when, you, when you know better and you do it anyway, right? You, you've hurt people. You hurt people you love. You hurt people that you care about. And, and this is why we are saying the starting point to faith is Jesus. We're saying the starting point to faith is a question. Who is Jesus? Not an accusation. You are a sinner. And here's why. Here is why the starting point is Jesus and not sin. Because Jesus' entire reason, his entire purpose for talking about sin is not condemnation, but restoration. His goal is to restore, to reconcile, to reconnect. And you know this. I mean, what do you do, do, right? If you have a broken relationship, let's say you have a broken relationship with your spouse or your kid or a parent or a friend. Like, how do you restore? I mean, if you want there to be restoration, what... What do you do? The offender, right, has to own and acknowledge the offense. I mean, the only way for the relationship to be restored is for the offender to acknowledge and embrace the fact that there was an offense and then find restoration. Now, don't miss this. Here's the big idea. Jesus' entire purpose for talking about sin, it's not condemnation. It's rather restoration. See, God, your creator, your heavenly father, he wants you to be restored to him. He wants to be in an intimate, loving, authentic, real relationship with you. But the problem is that you are a sinner. I am a sinner. And sin destroys, sin fractures, sin breaks. But God's purpose, God's goal is not condemnation, it's rather restoration. Let me try to illustrate this. Now, the Gospels, in fact, we're reading together as a church the Gospels, 89 chapters in 89 days. The Gospels, these accounts of the life of Jesus, they record these breathtaking events in which Jesus extended forgiveness and restoration to people who were considered beyond redemption. In fact, John records one of these in John 8. Look at verse 2. It says, at sunrise, Jesus again arrived again in the temple courtyard and all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach. So here's Jesus. He's in this courtyard. There's people gathered around. And John says that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they brought a woman. She had been caught committing adultery and they made her stand in front of the group. So here's this woman, this unnamed woman. She was caught in the act of adultery and they bring her to Jesus. So Jesus, there's this crowd around in this courtyard. They come rushing in. They stand this woman right in front of him. All eyes are on her. All eyes are on him. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught sleeping with a man who was not her husband. In the law, Moses commanded us to kill such a woman by throwing stones at her. Now what do you say? See, the law, that's the, the, old, the Jewish scripture, right? The first part of the Bible. The, the, the rules, right? It was full of laws and rules. Now, again, this is not a one-time occurrence. This is not a mistake. It's not an accident. This woman, she knew better. And it's true, the first century Jewish law required that she was caught in adultery, so she was actually to be stoned. They were actually to pick up rocks and throw them at her. Now, Verse 6, John says they were trying to trap Jesus with this question because they wanted to have a reason to bring charges against him. And look what Jesus does. John says that he bent down and he started to write in the ground with his finger. And they kept asking him. So he stood up and says, has any of you not sinned? Then you be the first one to throw the stone at her. And then he bent down again and he continued writing in the ground with his finger. Jesus is writing. How, would this would be really cool to see this. Right? He's writing, and they kept asking, what do you say, Jesus? What should we do? What should we do? And Jesus says, hey, 
Whoever has no sin, you go ahead. You throw the first stone. Look at the response, verse 9. It says, those who heard what Jesus said, they began to go away and they left one at a time. The older ones first. Like, pay, pay attention here. Jesus didn't defend her. Jesus didn't dumb down her actions. Jesus didn't give her any, any wiggle room. There's no talk of her desperate plight. There's, there's no talk of her difficult childhood. No, she was guilty. She sinned. She is a sinner. She was guilty at charge, and according to the law, she deserved to be punished. And Jesus, he, he actually invited her. He said, hey, okay, go ahead. First one, throw it. Throw the first stone. But no one moved. No one threw a stone, and eventually the crowd dissipates. Look what John says. Soon only Jesus was left with the woman, and they're standing there, just the two of them. And Jesus stood up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Hasn't anyone found you guilty? No one, sir, she said. And what Jesus said next, it's so stunning. It's so breathtaking. It just goes to the heart of Jesus, to the heart of the gospel, to the heart of the good news. He says, then I don't find you guilty either. Go now and leave your life of sin. I mean, this is Jesus who called people to an impossible standard of behavior. He declared this condemned woman uncondemned. I mean, this apparent contradiction reflects the essence of Jesus' message and ministry. Jesus did not condone sin, but he also did not condemn the sinner. He called sin what it is, sin. But instead of insisting that people get what the law said they had coming, he extended the very thing sinning people deserve least. Forgiveness, healing, restoration. I mean, it brings us back to the big idea. Jesus' entire purpose for talking about sin was not condemnation, but restoration. The Apostle Paul, he wrote a letter to followers of Jesus in Rome, and, and, and he's wanting them to get this and to understand this and to know this and to experience this. And, and he wrote this letter, which we call Romans. In fact, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he says this. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation. No condemnation. He says, your sin, your past, it's neither forgotten nor condemning. It's rather faced, embraced, but, but, but not erased. No condemnation. To who, Paul? For those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are willing to face, face the truth about themselves. To admit and acknowledge to God, I am a sinner. I am a mess. And I want to receive your grace. I am a sinner and receive his grace, receive his forgiveness, receive his restoration. How, Paul? No condemnation for those of us who are in Jesus. How? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit gives life and has set you free from the law of sin and death. Paul says there is freedom. He says, man, if you're carrying guilt, if you're carrying shame, if your life is a mess, if you got sin, I mean, if you want to feel bad about yourself, listen up. Paul is trying to get your attention. He's saying, pay attention. He says, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, he said, God did. God did by sending his son Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. God did it. 
by sending his son and through Jesus at the cross, when they nailed him to a cross, Jesus took what you and I actually deserve and he took it on himself. Divine condemnation, self-condemnation, all condemnation. And he says, bring your sin, bring your shame, bring your junk, bring your guilt. With your wife, with your eyes wide open, without stories or excuses or narratives. And together, we will agree, you are a mess. You are a sinner. You are guilty. You broke their heart. You lied to get your way. You were irresponsible with your body. You knew better, but you did it anyway. You were wrong. You missed the mark. Let's own it. You sinned. You are guilty, but not condemned. Jesus says, I don't see you that way. I mean, when I, when I look at you, when I see you, I don't see that. And Paul says, and so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And God chooses to see you and to see me, and to love you as if it never happened. Yes, you are a sinner. Yes, you are guilty because you did it, but you are not condemned because Jesus took your condemnation on himself. And this is a big deal, friends. This is the, the heart of the good news. This is the core message of Jesus. This must be the core message of our church. And if you get it, if you understand it, if it moves from like your head to your soul and to your gut, it, it makes a huge difference in how you live. In fact, in fact, you forfeit the right to condemn yourself because you are not yours to condemn. You can't condemn yourself because you don't own yourself. You are not your own. Jesus says you've been bought with a price. And guilt and condemnation will not control you. See, when you realize that the God who created you has forgiven you, you realize you lose the right to not forgive yourself. See, when you come to realize that the God who created you no longer holds your past against you, you find the freedom to no longer hold your past against yourself, and you find peace with yourself, no condemnation. This is a game changer. Yes, I am guilty, but not condemned. I have no right to condemn myself. See, when you get this, when you understand this, when this moves from like a concept and theory to like in your, you, you realize that your guilt will remind you, but it will not define you. Yes, you did it, but you are not what you did. Your past is a reminder to look up in gratitude to God. In fact, one of my favorite sayings around here is, my past will remind me, it will not define me. Say that. My past will remind me, it will not define me. It's, love, it's why I love that we practice communion every week. That we slow down, we follow the teachings of Jesus and remember and recalibrate and refocus and confess that Jesus made a way for us to be in a relationship with him. Not condemned, but forgiven. When you get this, when you fully get this, when it moves from theory into your heart, you, you forfeit, you lose the right to condemn others. You forfeit the right to look at others, to size them up, to write them off, to judge them and condemn, condemn others. See, when you get this, you're perfectly positioned to love the unlovable. That's what Jesus did. When, when you get this, you're perfectly positioned to follow Jesus and to forgive the unforgivable. You have freely received, so now that you can freely Give. Church, this is what changes the world. This must be our heartbeat. This must be our posture. Don't miss this. 
when you think about Jesus, when you consider following Jesus, when you consider faith, when you consider the idea of your confidence in God, when you think about sin, when you think about, I am a sinner, it's not a path to condemnation. It's actually a way back to relationship because recognition of sin is what paves the way back to God. I recognize my sin and it paves the way to forgiveness, to restoration. Jesus says, you have to embrace who you are. Own it. I am a sinner, but not for condemnation so that you can become everything I want you to be so you can find purpose and meaning and freedom. And unfortunately for many of us, the starting point to Christian faith is an accusation. You are a sinner. And that is unfortunate. But the truth is I am a sinner. And you are a sinner. But that's not a path to condemnation. It's actually a path to restoration. And the good news is that Jesus sees sinners different from you and me. In fact, Jesus was attracted and he is attracted to sin. He was put off with people that thought they had it all together, who thought they were perfect. But Jesus is drawn to those who acknowledge their life is a mess. Jesus' agenda in pointing out your sin is not condemnation, but restoration. In fact, people who weren't like Jesus, they like Jesus because, uh, because of this. Jesus taught, yes, sin separates us from God, but God's willingness to forgive is what reconnects and restores. Friends, I pray today that you would know that you are a sinner, but that is not an accusation. That is not condemnation. That is actually a path back to relationship, to be restored, to be connected, to be reconnected to God. God, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And God, I thank you. God, that you made a way, that you took all of my junk, my sin, my shame, my guilt on you on the cross. And God, now when you look at me, you look at me through the eyes of love, through the eyes of restoration. God, I I need you. God, I pray every person listening to my voice right now, God, God, that that they, they would put the guilt and the shame and the regret behind God. That doesn't define them. That's not who they are, God. But they would find freedom and life and hope and healing in you. God, thank you for Jesus that you made a way for us to be in this relationship with you. And I pray it in his name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening today. We would love to hear from you. You can always reach out to us on our social media channels or send us an email at hello at Also, be sure to subscribe because you don't want to miss out on any future conversations. I hope our time together inspired you to take your next step in your faith journey. 